Hi, I'm Lindsay, and I am here with Daniel and Amber, and we are here to tell you about our podcast, 33% Pulp. We pick a pulp fiction novel based entirely on the cover because they're either funny or ridiculous. And then we split the book into thirds, we each read only our third, and then we recap it to each other and to you across three episodes, and it somehow comes together and makes sense. We hope that you give us a listen. We are 33% Pulp. And we're 100% excited to have you laugh with or at us. Bye! Bye. Japan, a very long, long time ago. In the beginning, there was the void, a formless nothing called Amatsu Mikaboshi. From this chaos emerged an egg, which hatched both the heavens and earth, and all of the elements of life. Back then, the earth was an endless sea of infinite potential, from which rose a single towering reed. Like spores or pollen, the primordial deities dispersed from this reed, including the first man, Izanagi, and the first woman, Izanami. They took a bejeweled spear and churned the oceans. From the salt water that dripped down from the tip of the spear formed the islands of Japan. Eager to populate this fledgling world, the divine husband and wife descended below. But Japan, in its fledgling state, was little more than a smoking volcanic landscape that needed to be shaped, sculpted, and seeded by further kami, or gods. So, Izanami became pregnant and gave birth to the god of fire, who burned her alive as he emerged. Consumed with sorrow, Izanagi fought his way past the hags of hell into the underworld of Yomi, whereby he would retrieve his deceased beloved and return her to the land of the living. But when Izanagi beheld his wife, He was overcome with horror, for Izanami had become corpse-like, rotting flesh hanging off of her exposed bones. He fled, and in her rage, Izanami vowed to kill a thousand human progeny each day, to which Izanagi vowed he would create a thousand five hundred more. And then he laid by the side of the entrance to the underworld and wept. He washed his face in a sacred spring, and from his tears emerged the three heavenly deities who would watch over humanity. First was Amaterasu, the shining queen of heaven and goddess of the sun. She was a jovial, loving, and kind deity, and her radiance gave warmth to humanity. Then came Tsukuyomi, the moon watchman. Finally emerged Susanoo, the swift and tempestuous lord of storms. The three noble children took up paintbrushes and painted the landscape, the trees, the ocean, and the skies. 
When they were satisfied with their work, the deities sat back, and the goddess of nourishment came forward and prepared for them a bountiful feast. She turned towards the sea, and fish came from her mouth. She turned towards the forest, and deer and rabbits and other wild beasts poured from her mouth. Lastly, she turned towards the fields, and rice spilled forward from her mouth. All of the gods delighted in the feast, except for the moon god, Tsukuyomi, who was disgusted that a low-born earthly goddess had essentially regurgitated up a meal for them. Insulted, he killed her, which angered Amaterasu greatly. She deemed her brother wicked and banished him to the other end of the sky, so that she would guard the world by day, while he would be forced into a lonely night's watch, when most of mortal kind would be asleep and unable to worship him. This marked but the first sibling rivalry between the three gods of heaven. It was decided by all that Amaterasu, being the bestower of light, would rule from the celestial realm. Izanagi, being her father, ordered Suzunoo to the earth to watch over earthly man. Suzunoo went to give his sister his blessing, but being a particularly mischievous deity who had just been relegated to earthbound duties, this kind gesture was understandably suspicious. So to prove his sincerity, the god of storms proposed a contest. The two gods each took the other's most prized possession, a necklace from Amaterasu and a sword from Suzunoo, and each created new gods from it. In the end, though Susano had created the most gods from Amaterasu's necklace, she claimed that they belonged to her because they had come from her treasure. Here we learn that while Amaterasu was a somewhat arbitrary divinity, Susano was a poor loser. He unleashed his wrath upon the world, tearing up the fields with his winds, scattering the landscape with lightning, and causing the seas to rage. Amaterasu was content to ignore him while she set about her celestial duties until Suzunoo flung a horse into the roof of her palace, which happened to crash into Amaterasu's close friend and handmaiden while she was weaving at the goddess's loom. The horse collided with this innocent bystander and killed her. The sun goddess was not merely furious, she was also devastated. She had been appointed to rule over a new world, And in such a short span of time, both of her brothers had acted out of pettiness and anger and destroyed aspects of the creation, which they had worked on together as siblings. Betrayed and alone, Amaterasu felt that there was no point to illuminating a cruel and unjust world. She exiled her brother and sealed herself inside a cave. With the sun gone into hiding, light and warmth left the world and threw Japan into a cold, never-ending night. With the world falling into decline, all 800 deities left standing went to the cavern and beseeched Amaterasu to reemerge, but to no avail. Meanwhile, Suzunoo, exiled from heaven, wandered the eternal night that had fallen upon the land and discovered that monsters, emboldened by the darkness, had emerged from their hiding places to plague the mortals and gods alike. Suzunoo came upon two elderly gods of the earth, who wept at the side of a great river. The storm god asked them why they wept, and the couple told him that an eight-headed serpent had devoured all but one of their daughters. This daughter turned out to be very beautiful, and Suzanoo was enamored by her. He vowed to slay the serpent in exchange for her hand in marriage. 
Then he got to planning, for Susanoo was a wily and cunning trickster. First, to protect his new bride-to-be, who went by the name of Lady Kushinada, he had her transfigured into a comb, which he then placed in his topknot. Then he called for eight vats of sake to be placed at the mouth of the river where the serpent monster, called Orochi, would emerge. Sure enough, the foul beast Orochi did rise up from the river and, detecting the wafting scent of alcohol, dipped a head into one of the vats of sake and drank most indulgently. Reminds me of college. When all eight heads were passed out from a drunken stupor, Suzunoo took a sword and swiftly cut all eight heads off, causing the river to run red with blood. Inside the corpse of the beast, the Lord of Storms found a mighty sacred sword that the beast had presumably eaten, though I like to think it was the byproduct of consuming seven previous goddesses beforehand, a bit of feminine vengeance magically weaponized. This sword was called the Murakumo, the Gathering Cloud. Suzunoo took the sword, eyed it over, and decided that it would make a good apology gift. Meanwhile, back home in heaven, the gods were still puzzling how to restore sunlight to the world and cure Amaterasu's depression. Finally, the goddess of celebrations, Ame no Uzume, had an idea. She called for the god of jewels and metals and had him create a resplendent mirror and a beautiful gem, which she had the gods hang in a tree opposite Amaterasu's cavern. Finally, Uzume hopped on top of an overturned wash basin and began to perform a salacious yet comical dance, essentially the first burlesque. The other gods laughed and joined in on the scandalous revelry, taking up instruments and imbibing sake and creating a raucous time. Intrigued by the noise, and probably the FOMO, Amaterasu reemerged from the cavern. The jewel caught her light, and she beheld herself in the mirror. Uzume came forth and laid her hands on Amaterasu's shoulders, leading her away from the cave. And Uzume said, Look, my queen, how beautiful you shine, and how important you are to this new world. Each god has its purpose, and all must work together to ensure harmony. The sun goddess agreed, and called off her brother's exile. Suzunoo entered the palace with his new wife, and, with his head bowed low, held out the sword he'd found and offered it to Amaterasu as reconciliation. And the sun goddess was like, Yo! And the storm god was like, Yo! The mirror, the jewel, and the sword. These are the imperial treasures of Japan, a holy trinity of divine artifacts. But it's the sword in particular that has garnered the most infamy. And it is not alone. For centuries later, a mortal would create a blade that, while lacking that divine touch, was nevertheless unrivaled. This is a tale of two swords.
The Imperial Regalia of Japan are the nation's most important treasures, as they cement the bonds between national and religious identities. Though it is said that these ancient relics have survived into the modern era, nobody but their appointed priests and the royal family of Japan is allowed to lay eyes on them. Only during the ascent of a new emperor are the regalia removed from their shrines and presented to the incumbent ruler as a Japanese form of coronation. The regalia were not last seen in public, by which I mean sealed inside tightly secure iron boxes, since 1989 and 1993, during the ascension of the current emperor, Akihito. The location of the three treasures is kept secret, as ancient Shinto shrines are not exactly known for their high security. However, scholars and speculators hold to a theoretical canon of three different shrines set upon the mainland. The regalia are first mentioned in Japan's most ancient written works, which are part Shinto equivalent to the Bible and part historical chronicle. Compared to the works of Homer or the texts of ancient China, the records of ancient matters and the chronicles of Japan are actually fairly young, dating to about the 8th century. This lends them a considerable degree of historical accuracy, albeit mixed in with legends and various supernatural accounts. But legend mixing with the factual is par for the course in ancient Japan. So how did these enchanted artifacts pass from divine to mortal hands? The legend says that Amaterasu looked upon the people of Japan and decided they needed a mortal ruler with divine blood who could teach them how to care for and subsist off the land. Amaterasu first appointed her son, Oshihomimi, but the god turned his nose up on mortal men. She then offered the role to her grandson, Ninigi, who was much more keen in working with the mortals. In order to properly rule and watch over them, as well as keep proof of this divine heritage, Amaterasu gave Ninigi her mirror, the jewel, and the sword. Ninigi was said to have brought humankind the knowledge of how to grow rice, and these rice dynasties became the first ruling families of Japan. The divine treasures were then passed onto Jimu, the first emperor of Japan, who was said to rule in 660 BC. It is important to note that for a majority of Japanese history, the emperor did not hold as much power as one might attribute to a person of that status. This type of rulership was typically granted to the shogunate. Instead, the emperors were seen as being protectors of the spiritual integrity of the nation. Though it was first known as the Gathering Cloud, the Sword of the Storm God is no longer known by that title. Its new namesake comes from the story of the warrior Yamato Takeru, Sword of the King Arthur of Japan. Takeru was the son of the 12th Emperor Keiko, and he was bequeathed both Amaterasu's mirror and Suzunoo's sword by his aunt, Yamato Hime, who was the principal maiden of Amaterasu's shrine at Ise. Incidentally, this shrine, which you can still visit, is purported to be the location of the sun goddess's mirror. But I would strongly advise not trying to get your hands on it, as it would probably burn you to a crisp a la the Ark of the Covenant. Now, ancient Japan was a time of warring shoguns and brutal warlords, and Yamato Takeru, despite his nobility and high status, was not spared from being a major target. One day, while on a hunting trip, a scheming warlord lured Takeru into an open field whereupon fiery arrows came down from the skies and lit the grasslands on fire. Trapped in the sweltering heat, Takeru took out the sacred sword and attempted to beat down the burning brush. In doing so, he found that the sword was enchanted by the power of the storm god and sent out a gust of wind with each swing of the blade. 
Takeru not only used the power of the wind to kell the flames, but he turned the fire against the warlord and his men, burning them to cinders. From that day on, the sword became known as the Kusanagi, or grass cutter, and has been passed down to each successive generation of the Japanese imperial dynasty. Or so they say. Whether or not the regalia hold supernatural powers, or even exist for that matter, is not for me to decide. But I wouldn't be doing this episode if there wasn't evidence for the existence of a now-missing sword. Kusanagi is first name-checked in the Nihon Shoki, or Chronicles of Japan. Like the tales of Homer, the Nihon Shoki combines historical testimony with divine intervention, and so to extract the truth from the source material is no small task. But if we give the ancients the benefit of the doubt, let's say the Kusanagi was, or is, a real sword. The Nihon Shoki dates the sword's movement to 688, when it was moved to Atsuta Shrine, located in the city of Nagoya in the prefecture of Aichi. After its most famous wielder, Yamato Takeru, passed away from an illness inflicted upon him by a local god he pissed off, Takeru's widow enshrined the legendary sword in Atsuta for safekeeping. Another account states that diviners among the court of Emperor Tenmu ordered the sword to be sent away from the imperial palace after blaming it on the emperor's declining health. Now, I haven't found a solid source for why the sword was to blame for the emperor's illness, but research shows that Tenmu was a convert to Buddhism, which was becoming a popular religion during his reign. It's possible the gods of Shinto may have not taken kindly to this comeuppance, though by and large Buddhism and Shinto seem to gel just fine in most circles, so your guess is as good as mine. Regardless, the sword was placed in Atsuta Shrine. Here it is said that a visiting Korean priest named Dogyo became enamored by the sword and tried three different times to steal it, as the sword had the peculiar habit of flying back to the shrine whenever it was taken outside of the sacred ground. On the third attempt, the angered spirit of Yamato Takeru himself summoned a vengeful spirit that made short work of the thieving priest, by literally kicking him to death. A more realistic version has the monk escaping to the sea, where a sudden storm dashes his ship among the rocks, whereupon the sword washes to shore and is safely recovered by its attending shrine priests. I personally like this variation more, though admittedly it does not feature the novelty of a monk getting curb stomped by Japanese deities. There are varying accounts that this theft caused the emperor to order blacksmiths to fabricate replicas of the sword, which would be hidden among various shrines to throw off anybody else who dared to pull that stunt again. You may have guessed that this is at the point where things start to get a bit confusing, historically speaking. And what happened next to the Kusanagi, if that one was the real Kusanagi, that is, doesn't exactly help matters much. Though the tale of the Heike began as a collection of oral histories, they were eventually committed to the pages as a record of the Heike clan, otherwise known as the Tyra. Like the Yorks and Lancasters of England, or the three warring kingdoms of China, Japan in 1180 was dominated by four great families, the Taira's, the Minamotos, the Fujiwaras, and the Tachibanas. In Japanese history, this is known as the Heian period. Fun fact, and it was marked by frequent conflict among the ruling elites. In particular, the feud between the Minamotos and the Taira led to what is called the Genpei War. The Taira were led by the child emperor Antoku, who, as you can imagine being a kid, was basically at the whims of his elders, which included his grandmother and his generals. 
The final showdown between these two great families was the naval battle of Dan no Ura, which took place in the Shimonoseki Strait on the southern coast of Honshu. Though the Taira held regional knowledge of the waters and were fairly confident in their naval prowess, the tides of war literally changed for them, and their archers and swordsmen were overwhelmed by the Minamoto forces. It also didn't help that one of their own generals defected halfway through the battle, and blabbed which ship held the child emperor. Surrounded without a means of escape, many of the Taira soldiers chose to commit suicide rather than be captured. When Emperor Antoku's grandmother saw this imminent defeat, she made the decision to end her and her grandson's life. She also happened to be a priestess of a sort and held stewardship over two of the imperial treasures, the sacred jewel and the kusanagi. She threw the two objects into the ocean, Titanic style, before picking up the six-year-old emperor and jumping into the raging waters, whereupon they both drowned. The mirror was spared this fate, as it had been held by one of the priestess's ladies-in-waiting, who was stopped before she could throw herself and the sun goddess's treasure into the strait. This decisive victory led to the downfall of the Taira clan, and the rise of the establishment of the Minamotos as the first shogunate of Japan. And legend has it that, ever since this battle, the spirits of the fallen warriors still manifest themselves in the forms of the strange-looking heiki crabs that live in the Shimonoseke Strait. I say strange because heiki crab's carapace has the very unusual and outright uncanny resemblance to the face of an angry samurai. Go to Google Images and you'll see what I mean. It's spooky. Back to the point. The tale of the Heiki claims that while the jewel was miraculously recovered from the unforgiving waters of the Shimonoseki, the Kusanagi was sadly lost for all time. But its story does not end there, because for one, the tale of the Heiki was written 200 years after the Battle of Dan no Ura, making any records of first-hand accounts dubious at best, but true believers swear that the sword that was lost at sea was actually one of the decoys, and the real Kusanagi remained safely in Atsuta Shrine. This fact is hard to prove, because it's not until almost a thousand years after the sword first appears in historical documents that someone actually gives us an eyewitness description of the Kusanagi. And even this is hard to verify, because we're not even given a date range on when this witnessing took place, just that the account was made during the Edo or Tokugawa period, which lasted between the years 1603 to 1868. Now, here's a disclaimer. This is one bit of research that seems to be copy-pasted on a lot of web pages without any real citations, and I have yet to track down a prime document backing up this tale. According to the words of an Atsuta shrine priest named Matsuoka Masanao, he and other priests caught a glimpse of the sword while making repairs on the shrine. And this glimpse was not sanctioned, as nobody but the emperor and the high priest was allowed to lay eyes on the sacred sword. Matsuoka describes the sword's container as a stone box inside a wooden box 150 centimeters in length, with red clay stuffed into the gap between them. Inside the stone box was a hollow log of a camphor tree, acting as another box, with an interior lined with gold. Above that was placed a sword. Red clay was also stuffed between the stone box and the camphor tree box. The sword was about 82 centimeters long. Its blade resembled a calamus leaf. 
The middle of the sword had a thickness from the grip about 18 centimeters with an appearance like a fish's spine. The sword was fashioned in a white metallic color and well-maintained. In legends and myths throughout the world, there's always a familiar tale of mortal men laying eyes on something they're not supposed to see, and failing to avert their eyes even when given a chance. These transgressions usually result in a divine punishment, and the case of Matsuoka is no different. According to the priest, that same day that he and his fellow monks caught a glimpse of the Kusanagi, all but Matsuoka came down with a mysterious illness, similar to what had happened to Emperor Tenmu and then they all eventually passed away. Only Matsuoka was spared, but he and the high priest were banished from the shrine, presumably by the emperor. Tied up in so many legends and rumors, it's hard to pinpoint if the Kusanagi that allegedly rests in Atsuta Shrine to this day is the same one recorded in the ancient chronicles. And since it's unlikely that the royal family of Japan is going to allow scientists to make tests on any of the relics, this part of the mystery may remain forever unsolved. As with all matters of religion, it comes down to a question of faith. Unfortunately, faith was one of the justifications for Japan to invade other countries during the early 20th century. It all starts with Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, which uses the Promethean myth, which her husband Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote about, and they were both friends with Lord Byron, who kept a bear at Cambridge, and was the key shaper of the Romantic movement, which Oscar Wilde would be at the tail end of when he wrote Dorian Gray. He was influenced by a yellow book, which inspired the publication of a magazine called The Yellow Book, which specialised in lustful and violent tales, in which John Buchan was published, according to Benjamin, who wrote about Wilde's arrest. And Buchan wrote The 39 Steps, which later became a Hitchcock film, before he made Psycho, which was based on a game who made corpses into ornaments, unlike Victor Frankenstein, who made a man by grave digging and stitching corpses together. You done? Not even slightly. The Frankenpod, it's a podcast stitched together from the corpses of mystery, noir, gothic literature and cinema. Subscribe to us on your podcast app. The Emperor Taisho, who was considered part of that divine lineage, wanted to expand the empire, which he did exponentially, first invading and occupying Korea in 1910. Then his successor, Emperor Showa, better known in the West by his personal name of Hirohito, really kicked it into high gear with the rapid militarization of Japan. Now, this is a podcast and not an arbiter of moral judgment. I personally believe there are no good sides during any war. The Japanese committed many atrocities during that time period, such as the rape of Nanking, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, experimentation on Chinese prisoners, and generally trying to take over most of the Pacific. But let's not forget that America unjustly rounded up its first and second generation Japanese citizens and placed them into concentration camps, as well as dropped two atomic bombs on the country at a time when most modern historians now agree that Japan was about to surrender anyway. But the fact is, Japan during World War II was kind of the worst. Part of the reason why so many citizens supported Emperor Hirohito in the first place was because of the belief that he was part of a godly lineage that could be traced back to the sun goddess, Amaterasu. But even if you're just now hearing about the gods of Japan for the first time in this episode, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around a goddess as gentle and kind as Amaterasu ever sanctioning such bloodshed and cruelty on a mass scale. In the wake of World War II, 
certain Shinto theologians had to come to terms with the fact that their religion helped to condone the atrocities committed by the Japanese Empire. Though it is a bit apologist, a modern theory has since emerged to explain the spiritual side of Japan's role in the war. That theory is that the goddess of sunlight and the other good gods were not the ones behind the forces that influenced Japan's military conquest. The blame is instead laid on a darker god, who is rarely mentioned in discussions of the Shinto religion at all. Before the universe, there was that swirling, formless darkness known as Amatsu Mikaboshi. It is believed by Shinto practitioners that this is the embodiment of oblivion, which I should highlight is not the same thing as evil. But it's still nothing good, because Mikaboshi's desire is to return everything to a state of non-existence. And if this sounds kind of like a video game JRPG, well, remember, this is the same culture that created video games in the first place, so parallels are a given. Mikaboshi manifests itself in the hearts of men, and is supposed to drive their most primal desires, which, from a spiritual lens, are believed to lead one on an inevitable road to destruction. So there are definitely touches of Buddhism at work in this philosophy, for sure. Mikaboshi, therefore, is analogous to the dark side of the Force in Star Wars, as an antithesis to the light side of Shinto, which is all about creation and piety and reverence for nature. The gods preserve, Mikaboshi destroys. Mikaboshi can also be summoned and called upon as a tool of destruction. This was apparently a good idea, according to a cult of Japanese sorcerers who were working behind the scenes of the imperial household during Japan's imperial infancy. It's during this broad period of time that Mikaboshi takes on a more corporeal form of an evil god of stars named Kagaseo. Kagaseo is said to scorn the other gods, goodness in general, and likes to corrupt the souls of men. He is also said to be the god and embodiment of the North Star. Sounds kind of like a dark entity most Westerners would be familiar with, who is also fond of corrupting men, has a grudge against God, and is often associated with a classical star, in this case, the Morning Star. The powers of such a dark being were reportedly channeled by the legendary shaman queen Himiko, a figure of dubious existence in Japanese lore who may or may not have ruled over the Yamatai Empire. There are even some who speculate that the flag of the rising sun, used during World War II, was not an emblem of the sun at all, but a sigil used by Himiko during her dark rituals, and its propagation was a kind of enchantment that called down destructive forces. Wild stuff, right? But what does it have to do with legendary swords, you say? Well, not much. I just thought it was kind of cool, and our second sword tale deals directly with World War II anyway and I need to hit 15 minutes of runtime. This other sword was not wrought by the gods, but by a man, who has nevertheless achieved a sort of immortality in the Japanese pantheon. Though we do not have a clear record of his life, Goro Nyudo Masamune was believed to have lived at some point during 1264 and 1343 of the Common Era. We can date this because of his claims to fame, the fabrication of the most powerful and revered swords in Japanese history. Masamune was a swordsmith who produced weaponry for the samurai class. If you've ever watched Game of Thrones, a show you already know is beloved by this podcaster, his swords are the kind that get names like Oathkeeper and Needle. Many big names who directly influenced Japanese history wielded Masamune's swords, 
rulers such as Nobunaga and Hideyoshi, who helped unify Japan under one banner. Common samurai beliefs dictate that swords have souls of their own, and they retain their own sense of power and morality. These tales may have been inspired by the Kusanagi. The great legend of Masamune revolves around a challenge between the swordsmith and his apprentice, another great swordmaster in his own respects named Muramasa. The blacksmiths channeled all of their prowess and technique into the forging of two shining immaculate swords. Muramasa named his sword Ten Thousand Cold Knights, and Masamune's was called The Tender Hands, which both sound like Harlequin romance novel titles and not the name of legendary samurai swords, but that's just me. The swordsmiths hung both swords from a low-hanging bridge, so the blades were submerged below the running river. Ten thousand cold knights successfully cut the leaves and the fish that crossed its blade. Muramasa's blade, on the other hand, only cut the leaves. Muramasa declared himself the winner since his sword cut everything in the river. But as with all Japanese legends, there is a philosophical twist here. A monk who had been watching the challenge approached the two smiths and proclaimed tender hands as the superior sword. The reason being is that tender hands cut only the inorganic objects and spared the innocent creatures in the river, while the devastating 10,000 cold nights sliced everything indiscriminately, living or no. For that reason, Muramasa's blades got the reputation as being dangerous and powerful, while Masamune's swords were known to be more pure and noble. Cool story, right? Problem, Masamune and Muramasa lived 200 years apart from each other, so unless Masamune had a drink from the Holy Grail, this contest of swordcraft never happened. But what is known is that Masamune, at the time of his death, whenever that was, smithed 61 blades of renown, many of which can still be viewed today. And as for the ones that can't be viewed, I mean, that's why I'm here, isn't it? Of all the swords Masamune fabricated, None was more coveted than the Hanjo Masamune, which is believed to have been forged around 1326 of the Common Era. Most historians believe its namesake comes from the samurai who wielded it, Hanjo Shigenaga. During a vicious battle, the current owner of the sword, Umanosuke, attacked Shigenaga, but true to the stories, the blade deemed the general an innocent and only managed to split his helmet and not his head. Shigenaga overcame his enemy and took the sword as his own. As the nation changed with the ongoing conflicts in the area, Shigenaga fell out of favor as a warrior and soon found himself in financial difficulty, so he sold the sword to the shogun Toyotomi. It didn't rest with Toyotomi for long, however, as only a few years later, the Tokugawa clan made a power grab and became the new ruling shogunate. Ieyasu Tokugawa, one of the most well-known shoguns in Japanese history, fell in love with the sword and declared that it would be passed down from leader to leader as a family heirloom. Even when the Tokugawa shogunate dissolved in 1868, it remained a hereditary treasure and symbol of the Tokugawa family's reign, which was a very long time. So not only does the Mahanjo Masamune have historical clout, but any who had the privilege of owning it attested to the fact that it was one of the finest swords ever made, bar none. So what happened to it? America, that's what. For hundreds of years, the Hanjo remained in the hands of the descendants of the Tokugawa clan. 
During World War II, the head of the family was Iyamasa Tokugawa, who was a presiding member of the Japanese House of Peers, which is similar to the House of Lords in Britain. So if your family was of samurai or shogun descent, this is where you went. When the Americans initiated the occupation of Japan at the end of the war and introduced the constitution, they made the conscious choice not to overthrow the emperor, but simply strip him of his power. They believed that retaining him as a figurehead would ensure stability among the Japanese people and help with the transition into a democratic society. From this point on, a good majority of the Japanese citizenry, war-weary and cynical, realized that the emperor was not a source of divine power, but a megalomaniac who had driven them to the point of near destruction. That all said, the Japanese royal family obviously still exists today, and are comprised of much nicer, charitable people. Part of American policy at the time was in stripping the Japanese army of their weaponry, and since swords were considered a ceremonial aspect of their arsenal, they were ordered to forfeit them to the allied officials working with the Japanese police force. Though I haven't found a solid reason why Iyamasa Tokugawa was so keen on handing over his family's priceless artifact, there are some historical hypotheses out there. Some think he assumed that the Americans would simply return all objects of historical value after the terms of peace could be agreed upon. Which, Hiyamasu, my friend, do you know anything about my country when it comes to shiny things? Others think he did this as a peace offering, and possibly to curry favor with the Americans should they decide to then annex Japan, which obviously didn't happen. In December of 1945, Iyamasu Tokugawa handed over the Hanjo sword, as well as 14 other swords in his possession, at the Meijuro police station, where they were taken into custody by the Japanese police. A month later, the police chief gave the swords to a man recorded as Sergeant Coldy Beemore, who represented the Foreign Liquidations Commission of Army Forces. At this point, nobody knows what happened to the Hanjo sword. At the time, the U.S. Army had bigger problems to take care of, and hadn't come to one decision or another on what to do with the objects that were handed over to them. Though the Liquidations Committee, in theory, was tasked with documenting and archiving samurai swords and other spoils of war, the Americans had a nasty, but completely unsurprising habit of holding onto the swords as nifty keepsakes for the simple fact that samurai swords are f***ing awesome no matter where you are in the world. So, many of the swords never made it into an army archive in the first place, and instead were sent back to various soldiers' homes, presumably to be taken out during family gatherings and displayed so everyone could see just how cool dad was during the war. Complicating this problem was that Japanese officials also handed over swords willingly as gifts to top-ranking U.S. officials, either as peace offerings or because there is a long-standing Japanese military view of honoring one's opponents as a show of good faith. One of these swords was actually a Masamune given to President Harry S. Truman, and can be viewed in his library and museum in Independence, Missouri. So, back to Mr. Coldy Beemore. I know what you're thinking, that's not a real f***ing name. Theorists believe that the name recorded by the Majuro police was written down phonetically, them not really wanting or caring about the actual pronunciation or spelling of a person they probably wanted nothing to do with, and were only cooperating with because those were the orders from the top down. That name could have been Cody Biltmore, or even Cole D. Billmore. David McEntee, author of Fortune and Glory, a treasure hunter's handbook, researched the matter for himself and discovered that there was a Cole D.B. Moore working for the Liquidations Committee at that time. 
While Cole wasn't a sergeant, it is possible that his uniform's chevrons may have confused an untrained eye, such as a Japanese police officer unfamiliar with army insignias. Due to a fire at the U.S. National Archives in 1973, Moore's identity was not uncovered until just this past decade, and both he and his wife have since passed away. Though his descendants have been cooperative with Japanese researchers on the case of the missing Masamune, nobody in the Moore family has come forward with the sword. Considering the potential buyback and acclaim, as well as the distance between World War II and today, it's unlikely that the Moors would have any reason to be secretive, should they be keeping an ancient samurai sword hidden in the attic next to the Christmas ornaments. But you never know. David McKinty thinks that the sword still exists, and has suffered that same exact fate as described above. It's an antique now hiding in the basement, attic, or storage locker of a family member of the U.S. Liquidations Office, who never realized the immense value of what they possessed. There is also the fact that this story might have been a load of bunk anyway. My personal hero, Josh Gates, traveled to Japan to cover the story of the Hanjo Sword for an episode of Exploration Unknown. And by the way, please let me intern for you, Mr. Gates. It looks like he had a lot of fun in Japan, for one, but more importantly, Gates discovered absolutely no records of a Sergeant Coldy Beemore, who received confiscated swords from the Majoro Police Department. Coldy Beemore? More like Cold Trail? Please don't unsubscribe yourself from my podcast. In December of 2017, Japan's 84-year-old Emperor Akihito announced his abdication, set to take place on April 30th of 2019. It's the first abdication of the Japanese throne to take place in 200 years. It will literally mark the end of an era as the emperor's rule and namesake is tied to the time period in which the emperor's rule takes place. Since 1989, we have lived in the era known as Heisei. Heisei, chosen by Keizo Obuchi, who went on to become the prime minister of Japan in the 90s, means abundant peace. Considering the present state of the world, it will be very interesting to see what name is chosen for this forthcoming era. Though Prince Naruhito will take over the Chrysanthemum Throne, as it's called, the current emperor's abdication is unusual. The royal family's divine right is often interpreted as the emperor fulfilling his duties until death. In fact, the Japanese parliament had to create an entirely new law to even allow the emperor Akihito to legally step down. This may just be a sign of the times. For many in Japan, the emperor is no longer seen as a descendant of the gods, but a man of fortune who, due to the circumstances of their royal birth, simply does the best they can with the role assigned to them. With the advent of science and rational thought, Shinto no longer holds the same power it once did as a religion, a fate shared by many other faiths the world over. But Emperor Akihito does command respect, in the form of a very modern form of worship. Shirking the cold and aloof demeanor of past emperors, Akihito holds a celebrity status as a man of the people, and has contributed aid and relief to many national crises. When Akihito's son Naruhito ascends to the throne, the imperial regalia of Japan will be presented to the new emperor, and most likely shrouded in that same aura of secrecy. Again, there will be talk of divine legitimacy and whether or not these sacred artifacts really come from the gods. In fact, in the wake of Emperor Akihito's abdication announcement, 
conversation has come to the forefront of why there must always be an emperor and not an empress, especially when the main Shinto figurehead and progenitor of the royal family is a sun goddess. Such are the questions that challenge the spiritual significance of the regalia. I've spoken in the past of legends getting so intertwined in history that it becomes hard to separate the truth from the lore. But in the case of the Kusanagi, and even the Masamune sword, I don't think it matters. We do not really know where the Kusanagi came from, as we do not really know where the Masamune went, because we do not have the omnipotence of the divine to answer these questions for us. That's why we have the legends, and to an extent, that's why we have religion, to fill in the gaps of the things we cannot explain, until science or history can do the job for us. And in some cases, that just doesn't happen. So when it comes down to it, we have to shrug our shoulders and accept the untruth of it all. Sometimes, you just have to go along with the story. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to follow the way of the samurai, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E. Next time, somewhere in Prague is a man made of stone. And whenever enemy forces threaten Prague's Jewish population, it is said that this stone man came to life to defend the city. Is this all just a tall tale? Or did some unlucky Nazis once come face to face with the Golem of Prague? And if so, where is it now? The adventure continues. <laughs>